I'm really glad to get to open God's word to you this morning. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Hebrew, excuse me, Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. Now, I, this is one of those things that if I were to share it with most people in the world, they would think I was absolutely insane. I can share it with you, and you'll probably think I'm absolutely insane as well, but I feel comfortable sharing it with you. I have a recurrent dream, and that recurrent dream, I have it a lot of Saturday evenings, and that recurrent dream is that I'm getting up to preach, and I have my notes, and I have everything ready to go, and as I ascend the pulpit, I realize that I am actually not wearing any pants. It's a very vulnerable feeling, uh, and there is something, I think, equally vulnerable with what I, I, I want to preach this morning. I want to speak about the difficult realities of laboring in ministry for the sake of our flock while also seeking and savoring Jesus Christ for the sake of our souls. Have you ever sensed in your own heart that Christ becomes a product we sell rather than the person who brings us the deepest delight? We know that's not what he intended, We know that his delight, in many ways, is for us to be delighted in him. And so we know God has designed ministry so that our walk with Christ and our joy in Christ would be the the horse that pulls the plow in ministry. But sometimes, at least for me, the busyness of ministry and the pressures of ministry can be so consuming that I try to take the yoke onto my own shoulders and I try to pull the plow myself. What will result, inevitably, is, is seasons of exhaustion and misdirected focus and burnout and a parched soul. And perhaps, brothers, perhaps there are times where you find that you are doing much for Christ and can't remember the last time you had rich fellowship with Christ. If that's been your experience, and maybe that's your experience right now, I hope to take these next few minutes to help cast our gaze, to set our eyes upon the beauty of Jesus Christ. And don't do so looking for sermon fodder but as nourishment for your soul. May this sermon draw to your mind the beauty of Christ so that our enjoyment of him and and our awe at his glory would be the thing that would compel us back into the field with our hands upon his plow as he works powerfully through us to build his kingdom. Let's pray towards that end. Father in heaven, we need your help because our souls are pulled in many directions. Our souls are pulled in, in, in the directions of, of uh, the labors of the church. And oftentimes we take these things onto our own shoulders and we feel so busy with the work of the church that we forget about communion with the Lord of the church. And we forget that the purpose of all that we do is fellowship with Jesus Christ who has made a way when there was no way. And so we pray that you would uh, thaw our hearts this morning and ravish us, warm us 
with the beauty of the glory of Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Much, much more in these verses than 20 minutes will allow. Uh, In his commentary, masterful commentary on Hebrews, John Owen devoted 151 pages to these four verses. Now, if you've read it, you know in Owen's writing, that was seven sentences. Hebrews was written because some of the Jewish Christians, the Jewish converts, started to follow in the footsteps of their ancestors, their ancestors who had been miraculously delivered from Egypt. And on that wilderness journey, they start to remember the leeks and the garlic of Egypt and start to think, you know, that was pretty good. We had it good then. They forgot about all that their God had done for them, and they began to long for Egypt. And and the Hebrews here, what they were doing, they had been converted to follow Christ, But rather than worshiping in the temple, they're worshiping in catacombs. Rather than having the the, the visible priestly system, they're they're worshiping an invisible high priest. And and they're starting to say, you know, we really, that was kind of nice. And by the way, we were socially accepted. We weren't persecuted. And so there's this longing to return. And what's happening is their hearts are growing chilly towards Christ. And so this, this, the, the purpose of this letter is to warm their hearts by reminding them that, that Christ is superior in every way. As we examine these four verses, I want to look at two things. First, Christ is the sustenance of our souls. And second, Christ is the substance of our ministry. So first, Christ is the sustenance of our souls. Look at, look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now you and I, in eternity, will not scrape the bottom of that statement. We will never exhaust the riches of that statement right there. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. Divine glory is is frequently depicted in Scripture as a blazing light. One that is so brilliant that even in the creation it lit up the entire cosmos. It's the glory that in, in eternity will replace the sun and will chase away all darkness. But verse 3 says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. Wow! There is no higher statement that could be made about anything or anyone on the face of the earth than that statement right there. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. All that is in God radiates out in this God-man. And this means that as we read Scripture and we believe what it says about Jesus and His attributes, we are, by faith, 
gazing upon divine glory. He is, simply put, our highest thought. Uh, It's like Anselm's argument. He is the one than whom nothing greater can be conceived. In him is all goodness. And more than that, he is absolutely delightful. Think of the beauty of this world. Now, you and I, if we were to, to discuss what is beautiful and seek to define beauty, we would, we would all have different things that we think are beautiful. But one thing we would agree on is that beauty draws us in. It has a sense in which it satisfies our souls and it brings us delight. And so that's why we pay for tickets to concerts. That's why people buy art. That's why people spend fortune traveling across the country to see the Grand Canyon. Because beauty... It draws us in and it brings us great joy. But of all the beauties on the face of this earth, there is none that compares to Jesus Christ. What Christ radiates to our eyes on the pages of Scripture are these wonderfully diverse yet magnificent attributes. To to quote Stephen Charnock, He is light without darkness. Love without unkindness, goodness without evil, purity without filth, and all excellency to please. And then Charnock says, like the sun shines forth its brilliant light, Christ shines forth the effulgent glory of the Godhead. That's why crowds flocked to Christ, because in him they saw beauty and life and joy like they had never seen before. And it was such, it it was this gentle, lowly beauty that they had never experienced before, and it drew them in. It drew the lowest among them in. And in him, they could see this magnificent heart, a heart that on the one hand perfectly loved his Father and glorified his Father and radiated the glory of God to the ends of the earth, while at the same time inviting people into his own heart. And it's the hope of the heart of Christ that draws us in. The compassion of Christ. Every time we draw near, every time we think about God, we do so through the heart of Christ. Because we cannot clean ourselves up enough. If If we really behold the beauty of Christ, we realize there is nothing we can do to ourselves to make ourselves beautiful enough to approach him. And so instead of thinking, I can fix this myself, we run to him. We run into his compassionate heart. And what a heart it is. As we look to Jesus, we look away from ourselves and we look to the one who on the one hand hung the heavens in place and at the same time hung exposed, wounded, bleeding, forsaken, and dead for our sins. We see the one who is so holy that thousands of thousands of angels minister to him while covering their eyes but makes himself accessible to us. As you glimpse this radiance of Christ, then compare your sins with his indelible blood, your needs with his awesome fullness, your unbelief with his immutable faithfulness, your frailty with his incredible resurrection power, 
your lukewarmness with the white hot fire of his love. And as we see ourselves and life in light of the glory of Christ, we find him to be exponentially more glorious than we can comprehend. The sin of the repentant sinner looking to Christ is no match for the risen Savior. What's amazing about this is that when Hebrews says that he is the radiance of the glory of God, it's saying to us that, that beautiful image of Christ, holy, perfect, glorious, and yet compassionate, that's a picture of the God in heaven. That's that's what God in heaven is like, and that is so important for me. I don't know if you've ever done this. I know you don't do it in the pulpit. I know you don't do it in your session meetings, but in your own heart, have you ever been guilty of dividing the Trinity where you see this warm, gentle, lowly Jesus, but behind him you see an angry, disappointed God? One who doesn't really have time for us. One who, as long as we get our lives in order, then he might pay some attention to us, but he's generally disappointed in us. Do you ever see that God standing behind Jesus? If you do, Hebrews is telling us that God is a figment of our imagination. There is no such God. Verse 3 makes that clear. After making purification for sins, whose sins? His? He had no sins to be purified for him. Ours, the elect throughout all time. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I read through those verses dozens of times and all the different seated verses in Hebrews before I realized what a big deal that is because the Old Testament priests didn't get to sit down. Why didn't they get to sit down? Because their work was never done. But Christ sat down. Why? Because it is finished. There's no more sacrifice left to be made. There's no more purifying to be done. And those who are united to him by faith have been completely purified by him. So if Christ is a reflection of who God is, is the image of the invisible God, and Christ's heart is so tender towards us that he has pronounced us clean based on his own perfection, his own purity, doesn't that transform us? If I forget that, my spiritual life becomes a checklist. A list of things that I do so that I'm good that day. My prayer life, my time in the Word, I am checking boxes. But if we're really looking to Jesus and understand this Jesus of Hebrews 1 then our goal is no longer to appease him, but to enjoy him. It's the Lord Jesus who gives us our daily bread, and then he looks at us and he says, I am the bread of life. Come and feast upon me. He delights to be our sustenance, and what delicious sustenance he is. And what happens in light of the gospel for me is that my own failures and my own inadequacies no longer strangle out my devotional life because I can remember that Christ is the imprint of the invisible God 
and that a prayer as simple as the dying thief's remember me draws us into the heart of Christ. He's not looking for my checklist, but as I look to him, I receive all that is in him. It's heartwarming. It's also heartbreaking, isn't it? Because how often, instead of looking to the one who alone can satisfy us and sustain us, how often do we look to other things for sustenance? How often are you and I guilty of looking to other things for life? Don't we look to things like recognition? the approval of of each other? Don't we look to leisure and distraction? Do you realize the global sports industry is a $600 billion industry every year? We're in desperate need of distraction. Do we look to pornography for life? Or maybe it's something much more sanctified. What about ministry? I am going to bet that for many of us, at times, ministry becomes a replacement for fellowship with Christ, doesn't it? Rather than looking to Christ for sustenance, we're looking to him for sermon material. Rather than meeting with him privately in prayer, the bulk of our prayer life is public. Why? Because Jesus tells us, because we're seeking our reward in this life when we do that. It's very possible, brothers, that our bodies may be in the pulpit while our hearts are in Vanity Fair. What are you looking to in hopes that it will sustain you, that it will nourish you and give you life? Whatever it is that is not Christ, it will not sustain you but drain you because it is infinitely worthless compared to the glory of Christ. Charnock, after he listed all those wonderful attributes I read a few moments ago, He said, are not all other things infinitely short of him? More below him than a pile of dung is below the glory of the sun. It's worthless compared to knowing Christ, compared to fellowship with Christ. And isn't it ridiculous that we'll spend hours scrolling through social media, we'll spend hours looking at other things when our souls really are craving communion with Jesus? And he offers himself freely to us. I think this is one reason we should love the jealousy of God. He is jealous for his own glory, yes. But it's such a benefit to his creatures because he knows that for us to look to, to trust in anything other than him will only lead to our misery And what we will find as we put other things of higher priority to us than Christ, what we will find is that we are ministering in a strength we don't have, proclaiming a message we're not believing. If we want our souls to have that buoyant, wonderful, sustaining joy that Christ alone provides, then we must fill our vision with him. Back to Owen for a moment. Owen had a difficult life. He lost 10 children. He was harassed by the government simply for trying to to pastor his people. He faced ailing health. Listen to what Owen says. A due contemplation of the glory of Christ will restore and compose the mind, 
It will lift the minds and hearts of believers above all the troubles of this life. It is the sovereign antidote that will expel the poison that is in them, which otherwise might perplex and enslave us. How could it be that a man could lose practically everything and speak with such joy because communion with Christ was his sustenance? Communion with Christ offset his earthly losses. He didn't just believe it theologically, he lived it. And it's no wonder that Owen also, alongside a book like Communion with God, would write The Mortification of Sin, because he understood if we're not killing sin, it will destroy our spiritual vitality. So be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And so those things that we're looking to, that we are placing on a higher level of importance in our hearts, not on our lips, we're not going to say that, I know, but in our hearts, those things that receive higher importance to us than the Lord Jesus, they're killing us because they're stealing the spiritual vitality that is ours through communion with Christ. Brothers, is there a sin that's killing you? killing your spiritual vitality and your communion with the Lord Jesus. It may be a great moral failure behind closed doors, and I would plead with you to speak to another brother about that. But it can be anything you treasure more than Jesus. As good as it may be, it will zap you because it can't sustain you the way Jesus can. If you cannot honestly say that Christ is greater to you than your hobbies— your wealth, your family, your reputation, even your ministry. I want to plead with you, brothers. Address it. Make communion with Christ the highest priority for your spiritual life. If I am not resolutely centered upon knowing and enjoying Christ, then my ministry may outwardly prosper, but my soul will inwardly wither. And so before we give one more thought to our leadership, our ministry, brothers, ensure that you're being sustained by Christ alone. Well, when Christ is the sustenance of our souls, something wonderful and logical happens. He becomes the substance of our ministry. Why does Christ need to be the substance of our ministry? Because nothing else not even the angels in heaven could reveal the heart of God the way Christ does. Look at verse 1 again. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. All the prophets and even all the angels in heaven could not, they could have come and spoken to us for God, but they could not have spoken to us as God. None of them could have understood or portrayed the heart of Christ the way that he did. It's only, brothers, it is only when we passionately set the Lord Jesus before our people that we can expect to see him bearing real, lasting fruit in ministry. Now, I do not know about you, but that is the most freeing thought that I could have in ministry because day after day, you and I have people coming to us saying, Pastor, we need this program. Pastor, we need this ad, added uh, thing at the church. 
Pastor, we need you to speak to this social issue. We need you to promote this candidate. We need you to talk about social justice. We need you to talk about the eroding culture. None of those can be the substance of our ministry. They are all shifting sand. And what may happen is you may draw people in for a time, but it will not transform them. And in the end, what it will do is leave your people empty and it will crush you trying to keep up with the ever-changing issue of the day. What if the whole sum and substance of our ministry is to set the beauty and glory of Christ before our people? If Christ is adequate to sustain your soul, don't you think he is adequate to build his church? And if, as verse 3 says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power, then shouldn't we make the power of his word, where we meet with him, where we see him in his glory, shouldn't we make that the substance of our ministry? But pastor, we need programs. We need stuff to attract people. Friends, if Jesus is really as beautiful as you and I believe, don't you think that his beauty, as it is preached, will draw people? And as it transforms the lives of your people and they go out with some commodity that nobody in the world can buy, that commodity called joy, the world will want to know about this Jesus. You and I need to be utterly convinced that the substance of our ministry must be Jesus Christ alone. We need to be utterly convinced that when people in our world are looking for beauty, and they're looking for it in a beautiful sunrise, they're looking for it in a concert, they may be looking for it in a pornography site. What they are ultimately looking for is what Christ alone can provide. Isn't that attractional? Isn't that seeker-sensitive when we set the beauty of Christ before the people through his word? As elders, pastors, the chief duty that we've been given is to set the wondrous beauty of Christ before the people. Preaching is really just going to the world and saying, look at Jesus. He is infinitely glorious. And look what he's done for you in the gospel. And it's so wonderful. You and I don't have to dress Jesus up to make him look good. We don't have to embellish him. In fact, we will never run out of sermon material if we simply look to the glory of Christ. That's why we examine candidates so thoroughly before ordination, because we're not just checking to see if they're nice guys who love Jesus. We're, we want to see that they're men who have a burning passion to preach the glory of the gospel of Christ. That's the substance of ministry, because only that can accomplish what we hope to see, a people who have been satisfied and sanctified in Jesus Christ. And I trust that everyone here believes that. But I think at many times, uh, at the same time, we might be apt to say, but it can be so discouraging. Brothers, is anybody here discouraged? Even if Christ is the substance of your ministry and you have a plain old ordinary means of grace ministry and you see churches down the road that are families in your church are leaving for because they have the games and the, the trinkets and the distractions, it can be so discouraging. And you struggle with the flesh and you can be threatened by others who seem to be more gifted than you. You might even be falling into a sort of hypocritical professionalism where you spend your day proclaiming the gospel, but if you're totally honest, haven't feasted on it yourself. 
or even worse than discouragement, you might sense that you've been successful. And what happens oftentimes when we are successful is we take our eyes off of Christ and we start to think we're the substance of our ministry. Our personality, our gifting is the substance of our ministry. And we start to think, boy, I am the means of grace. I'm what my people need. Discouragement's bad, but pride is crushing in ministry. So what do we do? If we desire buoyancy and stability and even joy in ministry, we look to Christ, and we look to Christ again, and we look to Christ again, and and we set him ever before our eyes. Robert Murray McShane was so right in that pithy statement, for every look at self, take ten looks at Christ. So life in ministry is hard, and at times our souls can be parched, and we can be incredibly busy let's take all those struggles and let's take all our successes and look to Christ for grace. And as we look to Christ, let us be sustained as we see this compassionate, loving eye upon us and have confidence to call on him day by day by day. And let that sustenance become the substance of our ministry so that rather than dragging the plow with strength we don't have, we put that yoke upon the one whose very word created the universe and whose very word works with that same power through preaching, through the ministry of the word as he is building his new creation. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, there is more here than we can grasp as we seek to look upon the beauty and wonder of Christ. Oh, God, we long to behold it. And some days we catch that glimpse, and other days our eyes are fixed upon our our computer screen, our to-do list, our meetings, so many other things. And and it, it is very possible that many of us can go the whole day without having given much attention to the Lord Jesus while having been in service to him all day long. Father, sanctify our hearts so that day by day our sustenance would come from communion with Jesus, that he truly would be the bread of life for us, and that from that would flow the substance of our ministry, that we would go to our congregations and to all the world simply to tell them the beautiful message that Jesus Christ is glorious. Jesus Christ alone can save and Jesus Christ alone can satisfy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.